I'm Toby Haydock. I'm in the same line of business as my guest today, but I haven't scaled his heights. You could say I'm in the Conference League of Gentlemen. Um, well, this, this is a very big machine. I'm, I'm wielding my big machine uh, in a top-secret location that's in the public. Um, I, I've got an illustrious guest who's very kindly agreed to talk to me about Doctor Who, so I'm going to ask him who he is and why on earth he's taken time out of his busy schedule, he's between shows, um, to talk to me about Doctor Who. Hello, I'm Mark Gatiss. I'm downstairs in... <laughs> the Covent Garden something next to the Donmar Theatre. I've taken time out to talk about Doctor Who because I love it. Well, I'm very grateful, and I suppose <laughs> as we, we, we talk literally two or three weeks um, after the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, um, and you played a key role in that, bringing uh, a, a little thing called an adventure in space and time to BBC Two, and what a response that's had. Yes, quite, uh, quite genuinely... I think the most overwhelming response to anything I've ever done, and that includes Sherlock, because by which I mean, despite Sherlock being a sort of, a, a really a worldwide phenomenon and, and an incredible fan base and incredible response, but the, the response to space and time has been one of such warmth, uh, and not just from uh, people who remember William Hartnell, just a lot of people who were just very affected by the drama, and that... I really couldn't have asked for anything more because what I wanted it to be fundamentally was a human drama, the story of of one man's struggle, and uh, that sounds like Hitler. <laughs> but um, but mostly, the, the you know the, the very real sense that it's everybody's story because we all ultimately are replaceable, and I, I think that's what always fascinated me about the story when I first heard it when I was a kid. That the the I, there's deep sadness to a melancholy which always appeals to me in everything but but ultimately a very celebratory tone and that's the, that's what I wanted to do weird the weird thing is William Hartnell's greatest gift to the program was was leaving because even though he was the original and for many people still the doctor if he'd been well as he predicted, the show might have run five years and then they might have said, let's do something else and he would have retired happily, whatever, and got on to something else, who knows. But weirdly, the fact it was still very popular and the BBC wanted to continue forced them to come up with this idea of changing the lead actor and that's why we're still sitting here talking about it. So it's a, it's a, it's a double-edged thing for me. There's the, there's the personal sadness that of, of this man getting this incredible job which totally changed his life and then the fact that he had to give it up. But it, ultimately, what it's led to is... 50 years of wonderment. And uh, I, I know you've talked about, and certainly the, the Internet Boards have, have highlighted, for example, the fact that you couldn't find a place for David Whittaker in the telling yeah. of the story. So were there any other avenues that you went up in the genesis uh, and development of it that we didn't get in the final programme, and, and what were the reasons for that? There was an early draft, uh, first two or three drafts, uh, There was a, the whole B-plot really was about Terry Nation and Raymond Cusick. Uh, again, which a story I've always wanted to tell. And uh, there's a child over there with a plastic bag on its head. I'm just saying that. <laughs> That's really not very wise. Um, and, it, it, you know, really, it's just a film of its own, that is. Uh, because 
again, I, you, you wouldn't actually have to be a Doctor Who fan to get the things that are at stake there. Do you know what I mean? I think it's it's a, it's such a wonderful idea that that, that um, the scriptwriter became a millionaire and the man who actually created the thing that people marketed got a blue peter badge <laughs> it's just too good but essentially there just wasn't room for it and what i over successive drafts i realized more and more i had to hone it down to four people and ultimately to, to william hartnell himself um equally there was a the first draft uh was a lot more about his early life which has always fascinated me but it's, it's always a process of, of, of refining and realising where the real story lies, you know. I remember uh, showing it to my friend Brian Phyllis, an old friend of mine who wrote um, the Steptoe biopic and, and the Fanny Craddock one. He's in a lot of them. And Englishman in New York, he sort of specialised in them. And Brian's advice was, uh, what does he want and what does he dread? And I thought that was, that was really cogent advice. Mm. It's absolutely true. That's really all, all it has to be about. And, and presenting those sort of two poles. Uh, obviously with my anorak, or actually I'm wearing an anorak yeah. today, rather a good one though. <laughs> um, uh, it was very, very hard, uh, painful to leave out some things, but especially people. But um, I'm, I'm very gratified. I was expecting, a, a, I suppose, some more of a fan backlash, saying where on earth is this person? But I think people have mostly really taken on board that you, you can't have everything. And you also, it's not a documentary, you can't just present it in chronological order. Um, there were other things I think I would have I would have actually liked to have spent more time celebrating when it was going well for Bill Hartnell uh, but really a lot of that was budgetary um, you know I certainly wanted to recreate more missing episodes <laughs> and I, I'm still angry that no one's made a Zabi that we could have hired um, but again it was just impossible to do all those things I think you probably know it. there was a, a scene which was scheduled, um, and it seemed to me the perfect uh, exemplar of what of Bill facing his own dissolution, which was to recreate the end of Dalek Master Plan and have Sarah Kingdom uh, being hit by the time destructor. And Gene Marsh agreed to do it, and my idea was that he would be a 25-year-old extra, and then when she gets hit by the time destructor, she turns around and it's Gene. I said, <laughs> "Don't take this the wrong way, but you have to look like you're 150 years." <laughs> But essentially, it would have needed the edge of Kemble, and we couldn't. We were already reusing um, uh, the same corner of the studio to be Marco Polo and uh, the Tenth Planet, so it just didn't happen. So. And yeah, because it's literally was shoes. It's shoes because I think didn't we talk about? I think I found a guy who'd got a mechanoid, and you went, yeah, but yeah, we can't afford we can't the afford petrol it. to transport. Well, it, it became. A th I mean, that's. It's always that sort of thing, you know. I always. You know that, that the producers, the first rule of show business, never put your own money into the production. The second rule, never put your own money into the production. <laughs> I always do. And I actually, I had to underwrite the painting which became the, the cover of the annual. We couldn't afford it, and, but we needed it. So I just, basically, I bought the painting, which we could then use. I've always done that, I'm afraid. But there are, basically, you have to draw a line somewhere. Sure. And the mechanoid and its transportation from Sunderland <laughs> became the straw that broke the canvas back. But, um, but in the end, I think we gave a, a lovely flavour of the episodes. And, you know, the, the, to be honest, the, the hair and makeup and costume did such an incredible job. You know, they, they made Susan's sleep outfit in that tiny bit of the edge of destruction. 
they made sure that Bill's bandage with the strange stains was absolutely bang on. And, and then we did things which were completely in the spirit of the original, like the, 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 the lacquered Chinese staircase in the Marco Polo set is the same one from Totter's Lane. Just reuse They probably did. Or if they didn't, they would have done something very like it. You know, all those way stations with the same set redressed. Like that. So, I mean, we had a we had a very healthy budget, but but we were still trying to essentially do the same thing and and with the same the same challenges. Try, trying to get the Daleks made on budget. Trying to uh, the, the TARDIS, of course, was the most expensive set as it was originally, and it's a, it's weird how things just sort of repeated themselves. And had you known David Bradley beforehand? I mean, when, when he was courted for it, did you do that? Or was that just more, a much more formal and professional process? No, it wasn't professional at all. I'm afraid I couldn't resist it. I, um, I had met David a couple of times. I didn't know him. Um, and I should have waited, because you, of course you should do it professionally. But we were both at the National watching the Queen's Jubilee Gala at the Thames in the pouring rain. And uh, I just asked him. And he, he was over the moon. Just the idea of it thrilled him. And then we just formalised it after that. So, uh, oddly enough, he was standing right next to Sasha Dewan, so it was, who I didn't ask on the day, but I could have done. It's strange how these things come about. But and, I mean, he's, it's, it's one of those things. I, and David, everyone loves David Bradley. Everyone respects him enormously because he's, he's a national treasure and one of our finest character actors. The fact that there is a, such a close physical resemblance is a bonus but the main thing was to try and find someone who could inhabit the character and give it as I think David does in spades such an extraordinary air of dignity and empathy the, the thing that struck me only when we'd finished was the irony that in a way they're quite similar in that David has spent his life playing nasty characters uh, and so I think he was able to, to empathise with Hartnell in that way. Uh, except David is one of the world's loveliest men. Mm. And as we know, Bill was, was very difficult. Um, I, I did have to... Soft pedal is the wrong expression, but I, I was careful with certain aspects of, of Hartnell's life. Uh, obviously because the family were very sensitive about it. But... but Ultimately, because I wanted it to be a celebratory piece. It's not a biopic of William Hartnell. I think if it had been, I'd probably have gone further, but the earlier parts would probably have explained a lot more about how he became the man he was. Um, equally, I don't think he was any more racist or homophobic than most people of his generation. I mean, if, that, if my granddad had been Doctor Who, I'm sure he would have... The trouble is, he's held up in this way because he was the Doctor. Um, but I, you know, I, I did have some references to his affairs and things like that. And but in the end, I just thought, well, this is again, it was about focus. There just wasn't really room for it. And, yeah. and I, I'm glad, and I think it's, I think it's good the way that I glance, I touch on them. In, in the Chinese restaurant, he says choppy choppy, and and he does that joke with Warris, mm. passes to India and stuff like that. But it's, I'm very conscious of that a lot of biopics end up celebrating the gloom um, I mean, and, and I know Brian Phyllis would be the first to say this, he's, this to be the, the, the stuff they cut out of the Steptoe one was the stuff about the show being a huge hit and the where people would say look Harry I know you're stuck in it but it's f***ing brilliant but it just 
it sort of dissipated it. So I wanted to make sure from the beginning that sort of embedded in the script was the idea that ultimately I was just saying Doctor Who is 50 mm. and this man is a huge part of why it's still yeah. beloved. Well, it would have been an extraordinary thing to do if people would come away and go, oh, so I've just watched a thing about the dawn of Doctor Who and William Hartnell was a racist. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Thanks yeah, very yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay, well, you are, it's interesting, having done, you are my 143rd interviewee or something like that. And of course, the interviewees straddle classic Doctor Who and new Doctor Who, and, and, and none so in quite the way that you do, in, in that you were a consumer of classic Doctor Who, and you are a producer of new Doctor Who. A lot of the people who worked on the series then are now retired television personnel who see modern television, not so much modern Doctor Who necessarily, as the enemy, in the sense that television is now made in a completely different way. You are somebody that knows how that television was made, and knows how television is made today. Yeah. Are programme makers having to make compromises and unnecessarily so in terms of where the television used to be made or are those people just used to a different way of making television and equally good stuff and an equal volume of good stuff is being made now and market forces have nothing to do with it and the change of the BBC has nothing to do with I, it. I won't help you by saying a bit of both because <laughs> <laughs> it's very true to say there was always rubbish and there was always gold and there still is um, my personal experience I love the fact a lot of the old Doctor Who people that I've subsequently seen always talk about space and time as a play and I love that and it is a play it takes its time it's allowed to do so these things can still happen I've just directed an MR James for Christmas through BBC Arts it was a blissful experience it was like doing it in 1971 incredible lack of interference total support wonderful um, equally there are corners of, of, of the universe which have bred the most terrible things and they must be fought. <laughs> there is equally a, there is a, there is a terrible ratings pressure. There's always been ratings pressure and people probably won't acknowledge it, but that's very true. But it's got totally out of control, especially within the BBC, which is a public service broadcaster, and it's on page one of the remit, is that you should not be bothering. But of course everybody is. Everybody likes to be popular, everybody wants to do great art and it's be watched, but there is a... I think they cancel things. They've just cancelled Ripper Street after two seasons, uh, blaming ratings. They shouldn't be doing that because they're completely capable of broadcasting on the same evening as the last episode of Ripper Street, a documentary about how it took Only Fools and Horses five years to bed in. There's a sort of panic about that sort of thing, which is, and I can only speak for the BBC really, because I think the commercial sector is different. The commercial pressures are part of its ethic. Um, so. But equally, within what you were saying, you talk to lots of old TV people and there are curmudgeons within that community and there are people who, who are just excited and embrace it. So you, it's, it's a bit like lumping all old people together in a, <laughs> in a room, just thinking they'll get on because they're old, or children, because they're young. It's not like that. There are lots of shades of opinion and lots of shades of thought. And I, I, I mean, that's, that's the way it should be. Um, uh, I think it's... It's a harsher world to get things away in. It's very hard to get anything original off the ground. And uh, as I'm constantly, I'm always being asked, what, you know, what are you going to bring back next? And I don't want to bring things back, with very few exceptions, Doctor Who being the most important thing in my life. When, when Russell brought it back, it was it's just in incredible. But I would much rather be doing new things that people will be nostalgic about in 30 years' time than bringing back brands in that sort of way, he said, having done Sherlock and Doctor Who. But, uh, 
but that's what excites me. But it's just terribly difficult. I, I've had two abortive attempts to get to make my novels into TV shows. Primarily, I think, founded on the fact that it's not a brand. Whereas if I said I'd like to do raffles or something, I'd probably get, I don't know. So it's, it's equally, it's not, I haven't got a, a green card to do anything I like, uh, nor should I. I don't think that's, that's right either. But you, obviously you can get a better hearing if you have a track record. Um, it's, a very, it's a very shaded response I'm afraid because that's that's the way it is I don't think there's anything I think you probably sum it up the best way is to quote William Golding nobody knows anything and that's the truth so you could equally some someone the, the broadcaster will put absolutely everything they've got behind a total dud and then the thing they haven't noticed around the corner becomes the sensation of the year yeah. happened with The Office uh, it happened with Sherlock to a large extent in that we were absolutely sh- assured it was going out in September. We had a Radio Times cover. Suddenly it, it was out in the summer, traditionally a death slot, which we then completely reclaimed. And then after that, one went, the summer's amazing. Let's put everything <laughs> in the summer. Yeah, so. But it's, it's interesting that you mentioned brand because Doctor Who has a brand manager. Isn't a brand manager the very antithesis of the spirit of what Doctor Who is? Uh, or, or do we now accept that because it seems to be that we accept things because that's the way it is I think, I mean, to me the the principle of it is perfectly sound in that um, there was a long period where the BBC were constantly losing shows to ITV because they just wouldn't back them you know, they they do five seasons on radio and then they go, and the writers would go TV and they go, we'll see and ITV would just pick, it just happened all the time. And they've become much more savvy. And, you know, everything from the archive just to the, the principle of BBC Enterprises and worldwide is a lot more sensible now. They know how to actually market it and exploit it. So you, you have to take on board, if you're going to do it like that, you're going to do it very professionally, you have to accept that the, these things have to happen, even if it feels suddenly like it's being commodified and, 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 and Sir Philip Green might come in and run World, BBC Worldwide or something like that. Um, and then, and then part of that is the, is the sheer sense of having things like tone meetings within the programme itself, which could have, could have made a lot of earlier seasons of Doctor Who much more coherent if everyone felt they were singing on the same, from the same hymn sheet, rather than every week being, even though it's a different location, being a sort of, almost a different series sometimes. Mm. Um, but I don't think it's... It doesn't, to me, sort of kill the spirit of the show because within the show itself, you have absolutely the celebration of, of, uh, of the amateur. Of, of, it's, it's incredibly British, the, the British eccentric. It's all still absolutely in the DNA of the show. Uh, Saul Metstein yesterday, the BFI, he said, he, he said, when he came on board, he said, when I got over the shot that Tom Baker wasn't the doctor, <laughs> he said he just regarded, he, he, his approach was, this is a, a strange man who is actually... 900 years old but is fighting his inner 14 year old or something like that it was like it's a perfect distillation of what the show is um, so I think the, the mechanics of making it have become much more professional but the, the essence of the show is identical what you lose and you always lose something is that sort of lovely Radio Times coverness of it just kind of happening over there and somehow being slightly ramshackle madness uh, 
I just don't think you can ever get that back. It'll happen probably with other shows because people don't have high expectations of something like that. But, um, but as you'll know from watching the BBC Three switchover, it does not save the BBC from totally f***ing up in a very old-fashioned way. And actually, <laughs> to me, although it was, it was like a multiple car crash of epic proportions, which I was very glad I was watching from the sidelines, um, in a way, the day, the day of the Doctor, followed by that BBC Three programme, is the BBC. The very finest it can <laughs> offer in terms of content and an astonishing piece of 93 countrywide simulcast, number two in the American box office, followed by a live event, which is, as Peter Capaldi actually said to me, was like Hogmanay at Pebble Mill. It's <laughs> <laughs> true, isn't it? Astonishing. And I said, I said on the night, as I watched Gene Marsh being elbowed out of the way, by Zoe Ball saying, I want to speak to Leela. I think I whispered to someone, this is how the world will end. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how much of that will stay. <laughs> it was a joy to hear. Uh, now, I'm interested in you. Now, uh, you know, you are familiar to us because you've talked about it. You've always been generous with your time. You're one of us. You've given interviews to Doctor Magazine. Your Desert Island Discs um, gave, I thought, a, a nicely covered the balance between your humour and the darkness in terms of where you're up, where you, where you were brought up and things like that. The other paradox that strikes me is that I think everybody knows, I've only met you a couple of times, but you've always been delightful and everybody, I think, you know, reports you of being a very kind and a very, and you, you, you um, exude enthusiasm and a gentleness and yet to prosper in this business, you have to have a lot of steel. So do, do you have that steel and where does it come from and, and how do you mask it so behind this benevolence I don't I don't mask it I think you I had a long conversation with someone once who I thought was going the wrong way I, I won't use the expression I use I'll tell you later but I, uh, and I, without sounding too sort of patrician about it I felt I'd done enough to be able to take them aside and say you don't have to do it like this um all you have to do is be determined and persistent and lucky. That's the truth. I mean, I, I can afford to be enthusiastic and kind because I've done well. Uh, I, I, and that, that's the truth. Uh, I'm sure if I'd not done as well with my projects, I'd probably be sitting over there at that table spitting into my tea a bit more. And I don't, that's completely understandable. But the main thing is... I don't. I just don't think you have to be like that. And when I see it happening with certain actors or writers or producers, it really saddens me. Because what all that's happening is that people are are growing monsters, and and the more they're allowed to get away with it, the worse they get. They're certain legendary, bad, nasty actors, and it's only happened because they've been indulged too early, and then they, like like children, they, they just get worse and worse and worse. So. It's persistence. That's the main thing. Um, it's something I often often say. But uh, Douglas Adams was quoted saying when he was at Cambridge, um, he had about 15 friends who all wanted to write, and they all went. 14 of them got jobs in the meantime with the state agents, and he went back home and spent two years on the dole living with his mum, and he was the only person who ever wrote a word. Mm. And I think you've just got to keep plugging away. Really, have to keep plugging away. And if if you're good enough, and if you're lucky enough, something will happen. Um, equally 
the greatest power as an actor, as you know, is to say no, it's the only power you have. But it's also rather useful in, in other areas. Um, sometimes when I'm going through back, a backlog of emails demanding answers on various things about the, the 100 million other things which circle the production these days, which you're actually going, could we not just have more trailers? As opposed to doing these tiny little internet things which, which are like swallows, they come and go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those, those, mini, those TARDIS minisodes and things that you think, is that really going to help? Or is it just someone's getting excited about this advertising jargon for five minutes? You know? When I'm wading through those, sometimes I just think the, 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 most, the easiest way of all is to just fold your arms and sit there and go, no. Uh, you want me to sign this up? I'm not going to do it. Most frequently, it's because it's not very good. And most, or most people do their jobs extremely well, and it's a fantastic thing. I've just had the most amazing collaborative experience on space and time, you know. Everyone firing on all cylinders, everyone loving the, the production and wanting to do their best and going an extra mile every night. Sometimes you come across people who are just time-serving, and it's very depressing. But when they send through a DVD cover, which has literally taken them five minutes and they're expecting a quick response, all you have to do is fold your arms and say, over my dead body, and just make people work a bit harder. That's where, if, that's where steeliness comes in, to be truthful. For me, that's, that's from my experience, is actually just to go, uh, this, has, this has to be better. And have you ever had a moment where the metaphorical estate agent has seemed like a better option? Did you, you know, I mean, was it before Edinburgh, even before the League of Gentlemen, or was there a period between that and breaking beyond the sort of comedian confines that you ever thought I can't do this, I've got to do something else No, to be honest, really no because I, I can't do anything else <laughs> and uh, some might argue I can't even do this but I there wasn't a temptation in that way I think possibly if, if I had been if I had been good at law or something the only other thing I ever wanted to be was a paleontologist and I didn't have the Latin <laughs> uh, I couldn't have done it but I, I sort of stuck at it by dint of not being able to do anything else. And uh, that really helped, definitely. I think it must be much more difficult if you think, you know, I could be a concert pianist or do or something like this. Um, see, I had moments of doubt, lots of them, and very, very tough years. But, but I was very lucky in that the league came at just the right time. Sketch comedy was kind of coming back in. We had a very distinctive voice, which is very different to what people were expecting. Even though people, everyone assumed we'd gone to Oxbridge, the fact we were all northern made a big difference. And then the TV series kind of broke the mould, genuinely, I think. So, and then and, and off that, I've, I've been able to do all kinds of things. But it was also to do, again, we do with persistence. The, the, the four of us made a, a, a pact, not in blood, but to, uh, to not be distracted from doing the show. And that's why you know, we were together very tightly for over 11 years because we'd seen other people in comedy who were doing, who were suddenly doing okay, and then they'd suddenly be led off to do a quiz show or a, or a, a different thing, and their their main their parent thing started to slightly disintegrate, and then suddenly the people didn't know what they were they were stood for. So that was a big thing again about persistence. Well, and that's because we've convened to normally talk about it. <laughs> Um, let's talk about. I mean, was it? It was an 
I'm assuming you didn't have to lobby to, to get on board Russell T Davis's uh, flagship first series of well, I didn't, Doctor Who. I didn't. Um, I'd only met Russell uh, once or twice before, um, and I remember very well when the league started speaking to Matt Jones, who was script editing Queerest Folk, and Russell in the background just going, lines on lines on lines. <laughs> I really remember that very well. Um, but then obviously when, when, the, when the news broke, uh, Clayton Hickman rang me at midnight in 2003, said, are you sitting down? I said, I'm lying down in bed. And, uh, and then a few months later, it was Christmas. It was the best Christmas present you can imagine. I obviously, um, I was hoping, and then I got the Dickens one as well, you know, it was... I still can't quite believe it, to be honest. And what's extraordinary looking at it now is actually it's a Doctor Who Christmas special before the yes, idea I of know, Doctor I Who know. Christmas special was even a but possibility. But that's because... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's almost the most obvious Christmas special, but it's the thing is, of course, who, who would have even conceived there could have been yeah. such a thing? So I suppose, yes, it would have, it would have been <laughs> definitely a Christmas special, but it was actually episode three. But that's because, you know... Uh, the brief really was, I've still got it somewhere, it was, it was, it was Dickens and uh, gas creatures living in the walls, fake medium, or a medium, and, and then the whole idea of it being like a Christmas carol, because that's what happens to Scrooge, to, to, to Dickens, it's a sort of Scrooge-like journey, you know, but, but uh, it, was a, it was an amazing time, it still feels like five minutes and yet a hundred years ago, uh, and just magical really uh, and then and then I, I was talking about this yesterday actually at BFI but a curious thing there was a you know as, as you know everyone has to lie all the time but I do vividly remember having a script meeting with, with Russell about the idiot's lantern in which he said uh, it's exactly the same it's Chris it's Billy they're just having adventures to go in the pub <laughs> but and it was just a barefaced lie because it was just in such a state of flux you know uh, but I did, I, I'm sure, I, I think I wrote a, a first draft of The Idiot's Lantern with Chris Eccleston, isn't that? That's now odd, isn't it? It's very wow. odd. Um, and then, you know, these... It's a magical time, it was. I was doing the Quatermass experiment with David, who I've known for years, and we did the run-through in the afternoon, and we had microphones sewn into our hair, the live broadcast. And he said, I've got to get this out and I've got to speak to you. And we, we went around the back, it was Kinetic Studios, this is now tank testing centre for the Ministry of Fence it used to be. And uh, he said, Chris isn't coming back. I said, yeah, I had heard something. Uh, they've asked me. And, um, and it was like, I remember thinking, if anyone had told me when I was eight that whilst I was doing the Quatermass experiment, <laughs> my friend would become Doctor Who, I don't think I'd quite have believed him. But it was... Uh, you know, a slightly mad time because it just came back and the doctor was off, but it kind of all worked so spectacularly. But you are sort of Quatermass on Earth in the sense that the Idiot's Lantern has very Quatermass, Alexandra Palace yes, yes. and, uh, and, and the uh, clenching of the hands yeah. from the film. And then you do the Lazarus experiment, which, I mean, the very title, suggest, you know, hints that there's a man who metamorphoses and then in a, mm. in a, in a religious building, you know, meets his death. Yes, so, yes. Well, it's very, it is very Quatermass Lazarus, yes. isn't it? Yes. I mean, all delightful, <laughs> what can I say? And, well, I mean, by that point, had you, because, I mean, you know, it's easy for us to sort of look on the outside and go, well, he's writing, he must be best friends with them all. Was the part where you go, are they going to ask me to be in it as well? Oh, yeah, then? yeah. I think I remember 
I, my very first script meeting, I basically said, and I've got to be in it. <laughs> but, um, but equally, I mean, it's actually not very long now, but I, I just thought, I wonder if this will ever happen, you know. I was always reading in parts at various reviews. <laughs> but um, the truth of it is, it's funny now, but it's funny to think about that. I think Lazarus came my way specifically because of the prosthetic. And they, everyone just assumed, because of the League of Gentlemen, I had huge experience. We never used any prosthetics in the League of Gentlemen. Not a bit. Not. The, 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 the nose is going out, is it. The rest is, is makeup, but it's nothing like it. Well, obviously, I was going to argue. <laughs> um, but what, I, the, what happened was, I, so I did Idiot's Lantern for David, and then I wrote another script called The Suicide Exhibition about the British Museum, Nazis in the British Museum. And... It was between that and the fires of Pompeii. Uh, and, and they went with Pompeii. Um, so I didn't, I, I wasn't doing a script for um, series uh, three. Uh, it became four, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah. But I wasn't, at series three, I didn't have anything in. And uh, so I was in, but I was in it, obviously, uh, as Lazarus. And it was, uh, again, I mean, having had the best phone call I could ever have, I had the other one. And um, my agent at the time, uh, at ICM um, I was in the back of a cab it's like it's such a hoary old actor story in the back of a cab and she rang and said darling do you want to go to Cardiff to do Doctor Who for a bit I went what <laughs> and and I, I think I already knew what this, about the script and, and I said I led over and said to the driver don't crash this car <laughs> <laughs> which of course always made him crash the car um, but you know it was everything I ever wanted it's a it's a I think it's a lovely story, Lazar. I love its I love its quasimass inflections, but it was just a great big baddie. But actually, although there's lots of literal scenery chewing, it was a very sad part, a, very, a lot of pathos. And uh, I'm really I'm very very proud of the of the scenes in the cathedral, which we actually shot first, Wells Cathedral, because uh, I wanted to you know to me that that's always the essence of a of a great Doctor Who villain is someone who plays it dead straight with a twinkle and you that's what as a child I was, you would know that there was nothing not a shred of Michael Busher that was taking the piss not a shred of Bernard Asher sending up the fact that he was playing a dead archaeologist that's what makes it work and then even you know Harrison Chase it's the campus thing you could imagine but within its parameters it's frightening because he believes in his madness you know so um and it was joy. And the, my last day of filming was my 40th birthday. It was, uh, you know, I, I, I was black and blue with pinching myself. I bet. <laughs> uh, how did you compare it? There, there is actually one Doctor Who story, a classic that I haven't covered, actually, that I should now that you're involved in, which is called The Web of Caves. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, with, I remember, and I knew who you were. I had no idea who David Williams was. Oh. At that point. Well, it was 99, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. So you probably wouldn't. No, so was, was that something that they came to you to do those those vignettes on? Or? I think it was because it was produced by Mafanui Moore, who'd done Matt and David's shows on Paramount. I think that's probably how it happened. I think we probably slightly blackmailed them into it, as I <laughs> And we went through several things with that. There was... Uh, I wrote one which I rather wish we'd done now, which was a sort of talking head spoof, which was about an old companion. It was going to be shot like Alan Bennett's talking heads, you know, just about this man she met. Um, he said he needed more time, more space, all that sort of stuff. Um, but we, we didn't do it. Instead, we did the one which I then got into trouble for, come on to. But um, 
uh, it was very funny. There were lots of things flying around. We had this idea that the doctor wakes up and realizes that he he's accidentally when he was drunk has has asked a formless alien cloud to be his companion <laughs> and the, the cloud's just kind of going doctor, because this is not really going to work <laughs> there were lots of things like that but um yeah yes but then and i do remember genuinely entertaining the idea in the web of caves of asking jeffrey belden to play the doctor but then i thought this is my only chance <laughs> oh. I know, I know, I know. Um, we'll get on to Victory of the Darks, which um, uh, you again. I, I, all of your stuff, which I, you know, I, 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 it takes it to another level for Doctor Who fans like me um, when you have things as obvious as you're saying this I love the Quatermass experiment here's a bit I love Power of the Daleks here's a bit mm. and it does it makes no impact on people who don't know those things at all uh, and yet it's you going I love this mm. um, and yet there's a self-loathingness in fans sometimes as well that rejects that says, well, yeah, you're not, yeah, yeah. And, you're, and, I, and I still think there's an element in all of us that doesn't consider you or Paul Cornell or Stephen Moffat or yeah, proper yeah. writers because yeah, you're yeah. Doctor Who fans because you're us and we're yeah. all self-loathing. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's very true. I mean, one thing I always, when I, if I'm asked to dispense advice, like a, a vending machine, as I sometimes am, as I say, about persistence, the other thing is to write other things. And it doesn't, but you're absolutely right, it doesn't matter that I, my big break was writing a, was writing a famous, uh, co-writing a famous comedy show or something like that. I, I, I am a fan, and therefore, somehow, um, Peter R. Newman or Bill Strutton will always lord it over us. And I think that's true. Uh, it's it's a, it's a shame, but I think I would like I would like to think that most modern Doctor Who writers have have proven themselves in other areas, but also they pr prove by not just writing fan mm. that, that that's not what it's about but then of course the converse is that really an awful lot of the old guard what, what they want is fan mm. they want it to be impossibly complicated back references to, to, to shows that were shown once in 1964 mm. um, so I don't think you can really win that's the trouble if you, if you actually go out on a limb and try to do something different you, you can get pilloried um, in a way, that's why I'm very, I'm very heartened by the reaction to space and time, because simply because, obviously, in many ways, it's it's the ultimate Doctor Who fan crowd pleaser. But the fact that it's it's gone down somewhere with people who don't even know the show at all is what I wanted it to do. So I mean, that's that's a kind of ideal situation. But um, I knew with Victory, here's a perfect example. This is where I should have sat on the floor and folded my arms, because it's absolutely inbuilt in the script. I wanted them to be bigger and I wanted them to be colourful and Stephen totally supported me on that because I love the movie Daleks and I thought well look it's like a big this is like a 45 minute war film if, you, if you're going to reinvent the Daleks a bit let's do this um, and I love them apart from the hump and the hump when the designs came through I said I think this is too much I think it's, it spoils the silhouette and I really actually well, I could have just absolutely dug my hands I mean I, well, I did not have ultimate veto but I'm sure I could have made more of a stink and I'm sad to say I think you know time is kinder but the, the episode was sunk in fan terms by that kids love 
Kids don't see these things. They, they look big and colourful. I'm, I'm very proud of that story. I think it's lovely. And I actually, I, I try to walk a very fine line between praying, paying proper homage to people who fought a real war and the fact that you're having a bit of fun. Interestingly, I was thinking, I was watching last night, we saw it on the History Channel called The Great Martian War. It's amazingly odd, massively expensive, rather impressive pseudo-documentary about instead of the First World War, there was a Martian invasion. And they've done all these World at War kind of mock-ups on film, German soldiers speaking in 1970, just like the World at War. And then this rather beautiful black and white footage of tripods and everything. Oh, Trouble is, they're using real footage. And it, whatever, I just, I watched about half of it and I thought, this is weird. Because if this was an episode of Doctor Who, you'd go, this is marvellous. Because I think in the same sort of way, you'd be trying to, to straddle both things, a bit like Blackadder mm. does. But the fact they're actually using real images with Martians in, I thought was just in very bad taste. Anyway, sure. that's a digression, but that's what I was trying to do. That's why I put in things like, at, at the end, the Doctor won't give them the weapons. They have to fight it themselves. And Churchill says, tell Mr Attlee, we'll have a, uh, the war cabinet will convene. It's all back to normal. And uh, even though a lot of it was cut, uh, the stuff about the, um, about the WAFs uh, losing, losing a... Uh, boyfriend and, and it was very important to me I did tons of research and I was I came away even more impressed by how extraordinary people were during that conflict um, but within it obviously it's it's uh, it's got robots in it. <laughs> um, and having been in Doctor Who as Mark Gatiss as Professor Lazarus behind latex suddenly Rondo Haxton appears <laughs> in uh, Doctor Who who I have to say because I'd, I'd gone spoiler free for that yeah, so I yeah, yeah. got the Radio Times and didn't read it uh, it kind of gave away that it was you Yes, before. yes. Um, I didn't know it was you. Good. Well, it only came about because we were having a Sherlock meeting. For some reason, they were having trouble filling it. I don't know. There are millions of people. And Stephen just said, will you come down and play a space Viking? I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that was all it was. And then, but I said, well, this is genuine. This is quite genuine. I thought, well, I've already been in it. I might as well have a bit of of Sergile uh, Etram fun mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. Said, so, and it was based on Rondo Hatton, yeah. and he was the Hoxton Creeper. So we came up, I came up with this amalgam pseudonym, and then the Radio Times blew it anyway. So it's, I'm, I'm credited to myself with the Radio Times, and on the on the actual, it's just <laughs> it couldn't be more confusing if you try. But I'm very glad now because I mean, you know, I was in an episode with Matt, and I had a delightful time. And uh, got to play space chess with him, and then fall down a hole. So, and um, is the because you are you, you you do you do like um, genre? Uh, you seem to like evoking, as you said about World War Two and your novels as well, Victoria and all that sort of thing, and and the, the phraseology and the moors and all mm. of that sort of thing. Is uh, are you comfortable in the modern day? Well, um, one of the reasons I was very glad to write Night Terrors was because I wanted to do a modern one. Um, I think my, my natural home is yeah, the his, pseudo-historicals because I think they've always been my favourites and I love, I love exploring the language as you say and particularly if it's a favourite period or even discovering a new one. I find it fascinating and I love I suppose just the sort of collision of things. It's something that Doctor Who does so well. Sort of invented it really. With the time later on was probably the idea of that and some of my favourite stories was listening to Matthew Sweet's um, 
uh, night waves just before the anniversary, and, and he had three academics talking about Dr. Hill. He says it was, one, it was refreshingly f- free of sneering. They just watched them on their own terms. It was lovely. It's about the mind robber. I find it fascinating. All these uh, learned voices about it. But um, uh, I've got his name. Oh, who did uh, the series about the 70s, the documentary about the 70s? He was talking about Towns of Wang Chiang, and he said, only in Doctor Who would you get the, this extraordinary mashup of Fu Manchu, Jack the Ripper, Sherlock Holmes, a 51st century Australian war criminal with a robot servant with the cerebral cortex of a pig laughing in a handsome cab. And it's absolutely true. In a way, it's actually pastiche on pastiche on pastiche. But actually what it creates is something very, very special that's only possible with the accretion of years of doing it. Um, but I yes, I mean, weirdly, because I'm a Pertwee child, some of my favourite ones are very urban and very gritty. I'd love to see more of that in Doctor Who. I'd love to do more of that. I'd love to try and make more cosy things frightening, because that's what I grew up with. And I'd love to do one in space, because that's the one thing I've not done. And, uh, and I'd equally... I love those ones. I, I find the challenge of opening a little window onto a modern onto a far future is so exciting that when I watched The Invisible Enemy again, I'd totally forgotten about all that phonetic spelling. Yeah. I mean, that's design. That's just, just genius. And it's just it's a little hint of something different. Um, it's a lovely bit in Planet of the Ood that they wear those Edwardian collars. just stops it looking now. It's like, well, that's odd. It, fashion changes, people change. But that idea of projecting ahead into an unimaginable future but still has a human element we can latch on to uh, is thrilling really and I, I'd, I'd love to do more of that well um, I'd love to talk forever but uh, we can't so um, I've got a show you, to do uh, <laughs> I'm going to ask you the two the two questions uh, the first is what is your uh, charity because you have not been paid for this nor have I and the listeners haven't paid so which charity would you like them to donate to in lieu of payment uh, it's Cancer research. And as we speak, it's the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. What is your message? Still? Still, I know. <laughs> uh, the BBC have stopped mentioning it quite so much as they were two or three weeks ago. Uh, what is your message to the listening Doctor Who fans? Well, um, someone asked me at the BFI yesterday what my favourite classic and what my favourite modern story. Right. Green Death is easy to say, because it is my favourite but my favourite, it's a very political answer, but it's very true. My favourite modern story is the next one. Ah. I think with an eye to the future and a brand new Doctor, who I think will be absolutely phenomenal. It's just exciting. It's unbelievable the thing we've got this to talk about, but we have. But a whole new Doctor and a whole new set of adventures to look forward to. Well, Mark Gaysis, um, but you chased me for this because I wouldn't have had the courage to ask <laughs> because I know how busy you are. So I'm really grateful. Um, I'm also grateful for Cyril the Barman. Yes! Wikipedia thinks he was a caveman, but we won't uh, we won't. You can that. change that. <laughs> I'm not going to. Maybe I'm, he I'm was. changing my own. <laughs> um, but Mark Gaysis, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, it overran. I didn't want to cut anything. He's very interesting. And what a very, very kind fellow. Uh, thanks to Mark whose charity is Cancer Research, www.cancerresearchuk, all one word, cancerresearchuk.org. Please give if you can. I haven't got time to do a trailer, so I'll just say that, oh, go on, as you've all asked millions of times. Next up is part four of my interview with Russell T. Davis. 
but that's only going to be number 99, and I'm not repeating him for 100, so who will 100 be? Oh, it's getting exciting. Thanks for listening. I'm on Twitter at Toby Haydoke, T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E. Go over there and see what I'm like when I say things pithily, which I'm not doing now on a podcast that's overrunning. I'm going away. Goodbye. Doctor Who, Invaders from Mars. Listen, we are still heading for Singapore, aren't we? Of course. Singapore? 1930? Perhaps, let me say, 34th Street and Broadway. Not Singapore. Well, judging by that skyline and that taxi driver's language... And that... Dead man! And that dead man? Oh, I'd have to say New York City. Will you get moving, you great lunk? Hey, hey, you can't hurry genius, my friend. There's a fine art to successful chicanery. Now, you don't even know what that means. What is this place called? The New Jersey. Is New Jersey the place where your weapons are kept? No, sir. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. Who wrote this crap? I certainly didn't write this crap. You will, Orson, you will. We'll take Manhattan and Staten Island, too. We have the tap, please. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen, out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than is the holiday offering it was intended to be.